All right. Little quiz to start off with. Just to quicken our thinking, we're talking about Esther seizing the day, and uh, there's a lot about faith in this, obviously. So, here are six places, and what I want you to do is to decide where she had to operate in faith. Number one, if I perish, I perish. Number two, when she had to approach the king without being summoned. Number three, when she had to rely on messages via an intermediate, not speaking direct. Number four, when she involved her handmaidens, her servants, to help in the prayer and fasting. Number five, when she had to deal with Haman. Number six, when she invited the king to the meal. All right? So we do a hands up. Who's for number one? Who's for number two? I can count very quickly, so don't worry. Who's for number three? Who's for number four? Who's for number five? Who's not put their hand up yet? (laughs) Get with the program! You haven't? All right, get with the program. Who's for number six? Okay. I'm having a little bit of fun. When you're young, you can have fun. Amen. Amen. At every point, even just the things I've mentioned, there was a need to operate in faith. At every one. All right, we're focusing, if I perish, I perish. That's the biggie. But approaching the king to ever get there in the first place, he had to do that in faith. To send a message through somebody else. That requires a lot of faith, I can tell you. Involving the people that were around her. There had to be an exercise of faith that it was the thing that God was giving her to do. Not an assessment of the people. Dealing with Haman. Anybody thought that dealing with a difficult, awkward, nasty person, we could actually operate in the power of God? Because God is saying for us to do something. Yeah? That's the place to be. There's a quietness, there's a confidence, there's a peace. It's called faith, because we're doing what he wants. And then inviting the king for a meal. So, yeah, give out invitations in faith. So what we're going to look at today is to recognize if I'm building um, sort of adjacent to my, to my faith foundations. 
I claim I believe something, but somehow it doesn't impact how I behave or think. And as a result of that, to, uh, to commit to rebuilding. Uh, Gary, can you come and help me a minute? Now, Gary, you're a builder um, and you're also responsible for all the setup and that sort of thing. I need you to check this stage. Did you set up this morning or not? No, no all right, but still you are responsible. <laughs> Do you want to know who was? No, no, no. <laughs> I want you to just check this stage and tell me, you know, not, just have a quick look, make sure it's okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Gary. Uh, send in your invoice later, okay? Um, right, Gary, I have confidence in Gary. He's checked it. I've had a look at it. I believe that stage is good. It's fine. I noticed that Judy didn't go up there, but I thought that was maybe just so it was easier for Christine. So that's what I believe. Now, I'm going to put what I believe into action. <laughs> Old man. <laughs> I might now do a head flip back onto the floor. It's when we move from believing something into acting upon that thing that we believe. Often, people kind of struggle with an understanding of what faith is. Today, we want to try and clarify, but with a purpose of actually doing something with it. If you like, it's the ability to hear and believe God's word. And that comes out of a loving relationship with God. His word empowers and enables us to enjoy this wonderful partnership with him. <coughs> Excuse me, it was faith by faith that Esther was able to step out and save the Jews. I think so far in the series we've sought to establish it wasn't something special, some superpower in Esther. It was the fact that she believed God. Of course, there are a lot of things which are called faith, but they aren't. But today, let's try and to define faith, explore the call to live by faith, that is to build upon the foundation, and see what faith does, and challenge you. Yes, I would like to challenge you. Is it okay? Yes. yes. Thank you, three of you. Is it okay? Oh, come on, guys. I mean, the fact of the matter is this. What's the point in just looking and hearing something which is bland and you can take it or leave it? The Word of God is very, very challenging. The Word of God is there for our, what? Development, our change, our correction. It's very vital. So, in order to do that, a challenge that through faith we can seize the day on a daily basis. So, what is faith? Um, 
have more faith. I went to, a, some years ago, um, one of the, the local, I think it was a local church, I had a big meeting. And it was like a, a very, very well-known preacher coming. And uh, he, was, he started off to preach on faith. Well, after five minutes, I was willing to say yes. So the next 55 minutes, I'm thinking, just tell me what I need to do. I, I'm, I'm already convinced. I, I don't need more about you must have faith. And it went on and on and on. And I think I went further and further down because I knew that you're supposed to, but wanted to know rather more about the how. So it sounds like some kind of um, abstract superpower. Um, and sometimes people talk about faith as though it is some kind of superpower, which can be somehow harnessed and we can use as we please. So we're going to look at this clip from Star Wars, um, where <laughs> your favourite, okay. Luke's spaceship has sunk in a swamp and his master, Yoda, is using this situation to teach him a lesson on using the force. Right. Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. No. No different. Only different in your mind. <clears throat> you must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No. Try not. Do. Or do not. There is no try. Thank <laughs> you. 
believe it. Nick, it's why you fail. So, <clears throat> I didn't mean we, that we'd watch the whole film. <laughs> the essence, he's reprimanded for not believing enough. And so often, we're left with the idea that if it's about believing more. That's not faith. It's nothing to do with faith. Sometimes we feel like failures because we're not summoning up this magical power called faith to accomplish what's impossible in the natural. But that's not the way that faith works. So let's have a little look a bit more about what it is. Let's call it the sixth sense. So imagine there's a fire in front of you. <clears throat> you, you know it's real because your five senses will tell you. Yeah, you with me? Yes? Yeah. Is this too complicated? No? All right. How do you know that it's a fire? You see it. You smell it. You feel it. You can even taste it. You can hear it. Yeah? One, two, three, four, five senses. Now, let's think about the fire... You're in a field, and the fire is way, way, way at the other end of the field. So how would you know it's real? Because you can't smell the smoke. You can't feel the heat. You can't taste the fumes. You can't even hear the crackle of the wood or whatever it is as it burns. But you can still see it. So that one sense actually outweighs the others. Therefore, you believe it's real. So one sense overrules the four other senses that say it doesn't exist. Now, think of it like this. Faith, then, is our sixth sense. It allows us to perceive what is real, even if the other senses say it isn't real. So I might not smell forgiven. I might not feel forgiven, I might not taste forgiven, I might not sound forgiven, I might not even look forgiven, but faith declares that actually I am forgiven. Something that is actually stronger than anything. We, we, I don't know we tend to use it now, but we used to use a phrase, I just know it in my know it. I can't tell you how I know it, but for sure I know it. That is the operation of faith. So by using my faith sense, I can actually assert that God says I'm forgiven, and therefore I can believe, think and act as it's true. So faith is the ability to perceive and believe what God says above any contradictory message coming through our other senses. You getting it? Okay, turn to the person next to you and tell them what faith is.
Okay. So we can't generate faith. You, you, you can't, it's not a question of, of working it up. It can't be whipped up. It can't be thought up. It cannot be generated. It is, and it's only one way. It is by hearing him, hearing his word. And if you hear his word, it's inevitable that that will create faith. The things are joined together. You can't separate them. After Jesus died and was put into the tomb, Mary comes to the tomb. She can't generate her own faith. She'd like to believe. She ought to believe. She was told that he was going to rise, so she shouldn't be going to the tomb because the third day, and he shouldn't even be there. There was nothing she could do about this. But if you look at the scripture, you know, the thing that made the difference was when he said, Mary, Mary. The way he said her name, it suddenly brought back the reality of the relationship. And it's the relationship, the connection that enables and allows us to operate in faith. I hear that voice. That voice is from someone with whom I am connected. You see, the disciples, uh, who we learn so much from, from their mistakes as well as from their successes, if you think on the second occasion when Jesus performed a miracle of feeding people from that small amount of bread, they still weren't with it. They're still trying to work out, how do we do this, what shall we do? You see, the fact that they'd seen it before wasn't sufficient. They needed to hear it. So just seeing something is not enough. It has to be known in our knowing. See, in the storm, in Mark chapter 4, he'd said, we will go to the other side. And he'd shown that he really cared for them by that time. They got enough experience. He wasn't somebody who didn't care. But somehow, they didn't receive the critical thing. If he said, we're going to the other side, there is nowhere else on the face of the earth, including the bottom of the lake, where you're going to go. Because he has said. And the, the faith that, that would have kept them in peace and, and security would have come as they received the fact he said it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by his word. There's a quote from uh, Chris Vallotton. Faith equals the presence of conviction, not the absence of facts. It's not about denying the facts. It's a conviction. It's a knowledge. It's that sixth sense that goes over and above the facts that you face. Faith is not even the absence of fear. We used to talk about uh, if you live in a semi-detached house and it's not very well built, um, you're quite okay in your house, but even while you're safe in your house, you can hear 
something of what's going on next door, the mumbling that seems to come through the walls. You see, it's not the absence of facts, it's not the absence of fear, it's something that we come into because we catch what God is saying at that particular time. So it comes as a gift. It is the bridge between what is and what will be. It's the thing that makes the difference. We have to admit that we can't get it. You know, when I'm talking about the truth of the gospel, you would have heard me say, you can choose to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you think you can believe that, they ain't never going to work. You only believe that, having chosen to believe it, because that's what God said, by a miracle that God gives to you the faith, the ability to believe that. It's called being born again. It's called being made alive in the Spirit. If you think you can believe in Christ, it ain't going to work. You can't do it if you think you can. It's got to be dependent upon him. All right, faith then is a result of relationship. Let's have a look at another uh, little clip. We don't have faith in objects or in a nameless force. We have faith in a person, and the person is Jesus. So in this clip, we see that uh, Jeff Gordon, who was a, a, a famous NASCAR racer, he's carrying out a bit of a prank on an unsuspecting car salesman. See, the salesman was terrified until he realised who was driving the car. And then he says, let's do it again. Hmm? He didn't have faith that he would be okay. He didn't have faith in Mike, but he could have faith in Jeff Gordon. I think that, that's a good one for making that point. Once we know who is in the car, or the boat we were talking about before, we're more willing to believe in their ability and their willingness to do what they intend. So faith is not abstract. It's not believism. God doesn't expect blind faith. He holds us accountable simply to what he's already evidenced, what he's seen, what he's heard, what he's said to us. So it's not about trying harder, even. Not about trying harder at all. It's not about what I need to do, but it's about what he has already done. You want to look at another clip? I'm getting the impression you prefer to look at clips and listen to me. I might sulk and go off. I believe that God made me for a purpose. For China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. <clears throat> To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. You were right. 
just fun. To win is to honor them. No, in one hour's time I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? So faith is about hearing the word of God. He constantly tells us that he's done all that needs to be done for us, for our justification, for us to be acceptable to him, as well as for whatever instruction he gives us. So faith enables us to hear and believe this. Believing that he has already justified us means as we run the race of life, We can run it very differently from the man who's running in order to justify himself. There's a place of release, a place of peace, a place of confidence, a place of security when we know that we've not even, it's not even God that we're trying to to kind of gain some good points with. He's already done whatever is necessary to make us acceptable to him, and now he just wants to use us so that we might have an exciting life doing and being the things that he says. So in what we've just seen, we've seen two runners. They're preparing for the Olympics. The first, Eric Liddell, famous in Chariots of Fire, and the second, Howard Abrahams. They're both explaining why they run. Now, both runners are going to run with all their might, but Eric has faith in God's justification, and therefore, running with all his might out of his worship to God, out of, this is what you've given me to do, this is what I'm doing unto you. Howard doesn't have faith in God's justification and therefore runs with all his might out of fear of God. See, on the outside, they seem to be doing something very similar. On the inside, the thing is utterly different. See, we can have the same activities, but our motivation can be very different. More importantly, one motivation pleases God. That is our reliance upon him. And one disregards God because it keeps us as being self-reliant. I have to do this. By my strength, I have to do this. Uh, by my powers, I have to kind of believe it. So Eric Little, when he's running, he's feeling pleasure. He's running from what God has given him, what God has done. Howard Abrahams, I have ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. Running to what he wants God to give him, what he must do in order to get it. You see, God loves it when we trust him and his ability to do things which are outside our sight and our ability. That's why it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. 
We don't need God if we live by only what we can see and do. We become our own saviour, our own God. But also, we will live far below the standard that he has for us. Faith pleases him. Faith pleases him. It's a good thing to please God. Reflection is the reflection of our understanding of him and trust of him. It means we get to adventure with him and without faith. It's about our efforts, which is really death. Faith then means building on what we believe, what we know. And you can't, you can't believe, build faith on what somebody else knows. You can't get a ride. You can't piggyback on somebody else's faith. I always say this, particularly uh, for children and young people who have parents that are believers. They ain't going to help you in terms of your faith. It has to come between you and God. You can't ride on somebody else's faith. So let's think. Belief means to build upon not just a set of theories that we ascribe to. See, if push comes to shove, if I said, um, to most, most of the guys anyway, what football team do you support? Mostly you would have, you would have a name even if it was incorrect. But if I said, so what do you do about it? How often do you go? Do do you know the names of all the team? It's a kind of something that's in the background, you know? It's like it used to be years ago, you were either on the the university boat race, you were either Oxford or Cambridge. You've never been, you don't know anybody, but you've just always been like that. That's not really what we're talking about. That's... In our terms, that would be a kind of religious thing. Some might describe their faith as a set of beliefs, but that can be completely unrelated to how they live. If we we believe that we should forgive, but we carry some unresolved resentment, then we're believing one thing, but we're not basing our life, we're not operating on the, on the recognition, this is what God wants, this is what God said, this is what God has given the ability to do. It just becomes a mere, a mere belief thing. All right, let's have a look at one more clip. If faith is about hearing God and believing it, it's no good having heard something and do nothing about it. I want to say that again. If faith is about hearing God and doing it, whether it's forgiveness, whether it's trusting in him, whatever it is, if it is about hearing God and believing it, it's no good having heard, but do nothing about it. It leaves it as pointless. Faith is about getting into the wheelbarrow. Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known as Blondine, was a famous tightrope walker and acrobat. He's perhaps best known for his many crossings of the tightrope, 1,100 feet in length, suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls in the USA. 
His act will be watched by large crowds and begin with a relatively simple possum using a balancing pole. Then he would throw away the pole and amaze the onlookers. On one occasion, he crossed the tightrope on stilts. On another occasion, blindfolded. Another time, he stopped halfway to cook and eat an omelette. In 1860, a royal party from England came to watch Blondin perform. After his normal spectacular crossings, he then wheeled a wheelbarrow from one side to the other as the crowd cheered. Next, he put a sack of potatoes into the wheelbarrow and wheeled that across. The crowd cheered louder. Then he approached the royal party and asked the Duke of Newcastle, Do you believe that I could take a man across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? Yes, I do, said the Duke. Ah, hop in, replied Blondin. The crowd fell silent. But the Duke of Newcastle would not accept Blondin's challenge. Is there anyone else here who believes I could do it? asked Blondin. No one was willing to volunteer. Eventually, an old woman stepped out of the crowd and climbed into the wheelbarrow. Blondin wheeled her all the way across and all the way back. The old woman was Blondin's mother, the only person willing to put her life in his hands. Hmm. Yes. Relationship. We can have a list of ideas we subscribe to and we can call that belief. We can even call it faith. But if we aren't willing to get into the wheelbarrow to commit ourselves to what we say we believe, then it isn't the faith the Bible calls us to. Faith is, is a strong foundation of beliefs that we actually build upon. And it's possible to build adjacent to your foundations. Let's imagine that we're, I'm involved in building a new estate of houses. And obviously I'm going to start with the foundation. And you walk past maybe on your way to the station each day and there you see the foundation being built. It's good, it's impressive. But then one day you walk past, you see the foundation there and the wall's going up over here. And you think, I always did have a query about that guy, uh, about his mental uh, you know, capacity to actually build. See, if I believe, and that's my foundation, and then I actually build over there, that just doesn't even make sense. That nobody in their right mind would do that. But if we don't build upon the things which we most surely believe, it makes no sense. It's really what Jesus was concerned about in Mark chapter 4 when he challenged the disciples uh, for having no faith. You see, they'd heard and seen things which should affect the way they thought and behaved, but their reaction showed that they were building adjacent to their foundation. See, Jesus said, we're going to go to the other side. 
He demonstrated his care. That should have been sufficient. Faithful living means we think and act according to our belief. Some people dress for the day according to the weather app on their phone. Now, I'm not going to get into any names. But I know of somebody who believes what the weather app says on their phone in spite of what it may be doing outside. But it's raining. No, my weather, my phone says it's, it's sunny. Now, I have no names, no pack drill, but what do we believe? So what does faith do? It makes us stand out and not conform to whatever is just around about us. Let's go back to the Esther story. So the time comes, the challenge comes from uh, Mordecai uh, to do something about the plight of the Jews. What does she do first? Let's just remember, she turns first to God in prayer and fasting. So first she wants God's favour, then she wants the king's favour. Remember how she approached, uh, if I'm special to you, if I'm in favour... She also engaged in the fasting. Now fasting, or rather faith, causes us to to stand out. It's the very story of Esther that it caused her to stand out. It takes faith to live by principles. See, I'm sure there were people that said to Mordecai, why don't you just... um, bow the knee to Haman. I mean, you know, it's not going to hurt you. Just, 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 come on, Mordecai, just be reasonable. You don't really need to make a point about that. The truth of the matter is, um, we need to be conscious of this in the world in which we live, that the worldly argument, the thing which we are bombarded with through the media, uh, can be very convincing. But we have to know what God is saying. And if we know what God is saying, <clears throat> that's our position. That's where we stand. So society, let's just, let's just refresh ourselves reading this. This is Esther chapter 3. <clears throat> if you want to follow it, it's Esther 3. Let's just pick it up in verse 3. After the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. They kept on and on about it. Therefore, they did what they thought the next best thing. They told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated. Hmm, knowing Haman, I'm not so convinced that they were really seeing if it would be tolerated. Anyway, that's what it says. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai wouldn't kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, 
in the first month, in the month of Nisan, they cast per, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people, amazing how these things just build up, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered amongst the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of other people and who do not obey the king's laws. There wasn't great evidence for this, by the way. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. You see... There was quite a build-up, society turning against Mordecai and the Jews because he doesn't toe the line. Maybe he upsets the balance and made them feel vulnerable, or perhaps they were convicted by his integrity. False accusation, misunderstanding, all very upsetting, it all follows through. In a sense, that would parallel with our story. It takes faith to be as well as to do. In a post-Christian society in which we live, there will be a turning against us. Your religion is outdated and uh, divisive and should be more tolerant. and um, It's blocking our move to our utopian society. Just get in line with the rest of us. That pressure to comply, faith enables us to stand out and not conform, and not be affected by mob justice, something which has become very uh, very visible, even in the last two or three years, with the different campaigns and things that take on, and the need to actually find who's this person responsible for, and who to blame, mob justice. We are called to buck the trend what could stop us from buckling under that pressure love for God and conviction in what he wants from us choosing to believe what he wants is of higher importance than what the world demands you know Bible talks about being uh, salt in the earth and uh, salt standing out that leads to a better world. So the savoury brings out the best of the meat, the preservative stops from decaying, but only if it keeps its distinctive saltiness. It cannot become, in the interest of so-called tolerance, comply and fudge with things that we don't really believe. It's right that Christians should be dispersed throughout the world to bring out the best, to prevent worse tendencies. Very interesting, when Esther sought not to comply, when she sought to stand out, once she stopped dealing with the potential issues that would result basically from self-preservation, if you go into the king and you've not been beckoned, I mean, that whole chapter of things, of possibilities. 
Once she stopped self-preservation, she gets a whole new anointing, a whole new strategy and direction. Faith comes to us as we take responsibility and action. It causes us firstly to stand out and then it causes us to take responsibility and action to... Isn't it interesting? Um, You can abdicate when you have that opportunity or you can execute, move ahead. And I always thought it was very interesting when the king signs this decree and um, basically to allow the wiping out of, of the Jews. And the people in his city, in Susa, are, are shocked by this decree. I mean, he is so abdicating responsibility. He goes off for a drink with Haman. I think that was part of Haman's strategy. But basically, uh, completely abdicating the responsibility of what he was doing, letting others make the decision. It's a very good thing, once a decision is made, to get on with it. And God didn't release the plan until she made the decision to step out. And do you notice, when, once she's done that, once she's gone through, if I perish, I perish, all of a sudden, it seems like this is a different person. She starts giving orders. She's become the head and not the tail. Do you know, 14 times, Esther is referred to as Queen Esther. 13 of those are after, she says, if I perish, I perish. She becomes a person of greatness without trying. The decision, then get on with it. A holy resolution, not despair. Esther was more blessed in God's will than she would ever otherwise be at all. And I believe she must have been saying something along this line. God chose me for this sacrifice. Who am I sacrificing for? I'm sacrificing for him. I'm kind of on duty today. I'm, I'm kind of in the form of the queen. And I'm not going to take a day off. I'm going to be on duty. Not easy but worth sacrifice. Stepping out in faith, operating in faith, does take sacrifice because it's the denial of self-reliance in favour of the accepting of what he said. Faith causes us to take risk. There was no guarantee. Her famous words, if I perish, I perish. Faith comes, there's no guarantee. And who knows? It could be God. And that's about the best that most of the time we can get to. It could be God. And if it is God, that's what I'm going with. Because it could be God. There's no guarantee that that's why she was there. You remember in the story of Daniel's friends that were cast into the furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the foreign god? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Uh, uh, do you remember what he said? 
We believe that God can save us even in the furnace, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. That's a place of faith. That's a place of doing what they believed at that time in that situation was right and pleasing to God. God can save us, but even if he doesn't. In 2 Kings chapter 7, when the lepers were, gonna, uh, were starving and they were going to go into the enemy's city, but they thought, well, the end product was, you know what, we're going to die here. If we go there and the enemy hasn't gone, we'd die there. But there was a sense of a giving up of self-control to do what they felt was right at the time. How does it work? Well, let's just bring it. If we are someone, entrust something to someone, that's what we do. We don't have in this church a one-man ministry. There is always a sharing, a team, a delegation. When we do that, there's a position of entrusting things to others. It's taking a risk. The risk-taking is part of living in the kingdom of God. We've had to take some sometimes big risks. Dawn had to take the risk. She had to leave her home in order to follow the purpose of God. That was a very, very big thing. There was no guarantee how it was going to work out. When I was still stockbroking and all my uh, friends were going to Bible college and becoming pastors, which is what happened in those days. Bit of a nonsense, but that was the system. And I was working in all my holidays and times as an assistant to one of the national evangelists. And he was very keen on me being with him. And, uh, and he actually arranged that I would be invited to take over a church near where he lived and that part of the deal would be they would support me and release me to go on all these different crusades with him. But a problem arose. The problem was there was no sense. And here I am turning down the very thing I might have dreamed of because it was a risk. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know that shortly after God was going to come with fresh revelation about how we are even today, all these years later. I can't remove, nobody can remove the risk. It's our choice and decision to trust in God and what he says. I think we mentioned before uh, Tim Keller, very well-known Bible teacher, was starting a church in, in New York. And somebody spoke to him, they said, well, did, did, did God say clearly, no... I just feel that this is what I should do. Well, do you feel at peace? No, I'm too scared. Well, what if it fails? Well, God will still use it to do something good in me. The trust is in him, not even in the thing. Trust in his nature, not the outcome. So, we're talking about putting it all on the line. I think the Bible talks about... If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross. Yeah, it's, it, while it's hard, yeah. Did he say anything different? That the most fulfilling, wonderful life, 
the adventure of walking with him in the spirit, yeah, it's pretty hard on the flesh. We can't have him just rubber stamp, just kind of put his seal upon our choice of our own destiny. Please, play, I, please pray that I get the exam results I want. Yeah, they don't kind of... Can't, we can't just have him come along and just agree to what we have determined. Esther's so much more blessed in God's will than she would have otherwise been. Not easy, but worth a sacrifice. Okay, so let's bring it to us. What can I risk? What, what is God saying to me that I can risk? Is it incurring the displeasure of somebody that God is telling me to speak to about his great salvation? Is it reaching out to somebody and they might not receive me, they might reject me? I mean, I could go through a whole list Risk is what God calls us. What is he doing? What is he doing? How do I jump on the back of what he is doing? We call it seizing the day. It's a daily thing. Not only about huge, dramatic situations like we're talking about Esther, but it's how to live faith in the daily grind of living. Whether it revolves step of faith with time, with assets, money, energy or interest. Let me just conclude by saying this. If Esther is our example, it will crush us. We can't work on the basis of Esther as our example. But if we focus on what he's done, not what I need to do, it empowers us to actually live the life of faith that he calls us to.